music. Also, thank you, Aretta, for that beautiful song. I, I love the song, The Love of God. There, I was thinking when she was singing it, man, there's no greater tie into my sermon than singing about the love of God. And then I thought, I think just about every sermon, if it's about God, it should tie in well to the love of God. Praise the Lord. He is incredible. I feel I'm a little anxious this morning. This is the first time in about a month I've been away from my wife and had my phone turned off. We got a, a week till our due date, and she needed to go to her parents' church this morning because she heard who was preaching here. I mean, because, <laughs> because she had family in town, and uh, I thought about leaving my phone on this morning and maybe just, just answering it in the middle of preaching. That would be a unique thing, but... I also know some of the character of some of the teens in my youth group, and if I left my phone on, it wouldn't be a good thing. So if Greg walks in and interrupts me, we know, we know i got to run. So, But uh, thank you for your prayers in that. We are getting excited. It's very close. A week away from the due date, and, and uh, the room's ready, so we're excited. But uh, I want to talk to you today about a... Uh, actually, a teen came up to me a couple weeks ago. And asked me, um, with so many religions out there, so many, uh, so many different ideas, so many different gods, what's special about Christianity? What sets Christianity apart? And in truth, there's a million correct answers to this question, starting with the existence of God and the truthfulness of our Bible. But I wanted to answer with something to do with the, the greatness of God. The, something that, that set God apart from every other false God the world has to offer. Our God, the, the Christian God, the one true God, is a loving and personal God. No other religion, no, no sect, no myth, no false god desires to have a relationship with its followers in any, any teaching other than Christianity. We have a God that is so unique, beautiful, loving. It's incredible. Every false religion has rules to follow, has ways to worship its God, has uh, supposed rewards for doing rights and punishments for doing wrong. Uh, but only the God of the Bible gives direction, gives, gives us a demand to worship him, not for his benefit, not for his uh, exaltation or, or, or to put him into a position of godhood, but for our benefit. He calls us to worship him for us so that he can have a relationship with him. Only the God of the Bible loves his people enough that when we fail, and we do, he willingly gave his son to die on the cross, to die so that we can be reunited with him. This is, this is something that is unique about the Christian God and something that is so incredibly beautiful about the Christian God and something that has everything to do with the love of God. 
I was reading in Hebrews shortly afterwards. Hebrews 10, if you want to turn there. If you don't have your Bible, there's one in the pew. Um, and if you do not have a Bible at home, keep that one in the pew. That's for you. I was reading this passage in Hebrews, and it gives such beautiful instruction, beautiful picture of drawing near to God. I wanted to share it with you today. So turn your Bible to Hebrew 10. We're going to start briefly in verse 19. Hebrews 19 says, Therefore, brothers, before we go any further, as many of you probably have heard, every time in the Bible you see the word therefore, you have to find out what it's there for. Verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers, this is a continuation of a thought. And, and reading through it, the, the continuation of the thought is found in verse 14 and verse 17. Verse 14 says, For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Verse 17 says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Therefore, verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. When we look at this passage, it's, it's, it's tough to understand the thought, the, the one simple thought. How many of you remember in... English class and grammar school, parsing sentences. Do you remember parsing sentences? Is there anybody out there who really enjoyed parsing sentences? I thought there'd be a few. There's, and, and while I don't understand that, I, under, I, I, can, I can grasp why it would be interesting because it reveals the message behind the sentence. Nothing like parsing a sentence to understand what the, the writer is communicating. And and if you have an English speaker who is, is good grammatically, you probably won't need to parse their sentence because it's self-evident. You can understand what he's trying to communicate. But if you have someone who rambles a little bit, like myself, or if you have, if you have someone who's, whose words are translated out of another language into English, sometimes it's helpful to parse a sentence to find out the simple thought of the sentence before you fill in the meat, before you fill in the, the clauses, the supporting truths around this message. So, therefore, brothers, we already said that was a continuation of a thought, uh, almost as if it says, because of this, then let's do this. That's what therefore means. So we already looked at, at verses 14 and 19. This passage is saying, because God has made us perfect, those who are saved, because he doesn't remember our sins anymore. Because God has made us perfect, therefore, and the final thought is found in verse 2, therefore, let us draw near. Let us draw near. This idea of drawing near is is a theme that the writer of Hebrews loves. He uses it time and time again throughout the book of Hebrews. Uh, a couple of these instances, Hebrews 4.16, he says, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, 
that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 25, he says, He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews eleven six says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who draws near to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. This idea of drawing near to God is very dear. I think uh, four or five more times he uses this, this simple phrase in his book to communicate God wants us to come to him. God wants us to draw near to him. It's clear we're to draw near to God for a proper relationship with him. But how is it done? How do we draw near to God? Do we follow the Ten Commandments? Do we have an altar call right now? Have you walked to the front and and bow down and pray? What is it that we do to draw near to God? So that's where we go back. We'll go back to the text. Let's reread it one more time with the, the idea of the simple sentence in mind. Because God has perfected us, therefore let us draw near. Let's reread the passage along with the meat of the text this time. We're going to jump back at 14 and 17 and then read 19 to 22. It says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new, the new living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. We draw near to God, not through a list of commands, not through uh, doing things, but through the incredible pathway that Jesus opened up to us through his death on the cross. It's all about the gospel, the simple gospel of God. He died on the cross to pay for our sins. He opened up a pathway. He opened up the possibility that we have to have a relationship with God. Look at it closely. We have confidence to enter the holy place in verse 19. The holy place. The, Hebrews was written to the people of of Israel, the Jews, the Hebrew people, they all would have understand the holy place to be in the temple. In the temple there was uh, the holy of holies and the holy place and the the courtyard. And Jesus dwelt, uh, excuse me, God the Holy Spirit dwelt in the holy of holies. He was there with his people in the holy of holies. It's something in in all of uh, Jewish tradition and and, in the Old Testament the, great, the, the high priest was only allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies once a year to make intercession for the people. They went into the holy place several times a year, but they only went into the Holy of Holies once a year because it was so set aside, it was so sanctified. Yet we have confidence to enter into the holy place. Why is that? Because of the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. The curtain is another thing that all the Jews understood. It was a physical, uh, 
physical barrier in the temple, temple, an actual curtain, a curtain that was literally ripped in two at the point of Christ's death. Every Jew understood this. I'm sure it was a tradition that in the church about about the time when the, the, the veil was torn in two, something that people understood when Jesus' body was torn, when Jesus paid the price, he removed that barrier between God and man. He removed that, that separation. Instead, God became available to us to personally have a relationship with that time. And it says, and because and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Jesus Christ himself, by opening up the barrier, has become our intercessor, our mediator between God and us. We have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We have a great high priest who is giving us access to God. Jesus himself is our mediator. Because of these things, because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we can draw near to God. And it's done through a change of heart, a, a submission of the heart. To someone, we, we have to submit our heart to the one who has done everything for us, who has opened up that pathway to us. It doesn't cr- take great action. It doesn't take a, a life of obedience to the, the Ten Commandments or the Five Pillars. It doesn't take building a tower so that we can reach to God. It's something that we can do standing completely still. It's something that we can do sitting in our pew listening to a sermon. It's something that we can do lying in a hospital bed. We need to submit our hearts to change our hearts, to serve God, to love God, to submit to God. God desires us to have a relationship with him, to love him, and to seek to know him. How incredible is that? John Owen, a Puritan writer, um, exemplified this. He Throughout his writing, he had such a beautiful emphasis on his own communion with God, his own relationship with God, and it, it, it revealed so much. Um, throughout some severe illnesses, he wrote of the comfort that his relationship with God brought to him. But he also said it was important to have a relationship with God that is not prompted by illness, not prompted by suffering. One of the things he wrote is, Friendship is most maintained and kept up by visits, and these the more free and less occasioned by urgent business. We understand this, kind of. We, we make friends in our daily lives, and, and, and we love our friends, we depend on our friends, we use our friends for, for mutual benefit. But if you have someone who you call your friend, and the only, ever, the only time you ever talk to them is when you need help moving. It, it becomes a strain on your friendship. That, that's not a way to build a friendship. If you call on them and say, hey, can you come do this for me at this time? A, a friendship is not built on that. A friendship is built on time spent together, investing in one another, caring about people, putting energy into into 
getting to know and getting to love and building a relationship with these people. That's what a friendship is built on. And when a, when a friendship is, is, is good, no one's going to begrudge you coming to help you move if you need them to. But you cannot build a friendship on needing someone. That's not a true friendship. This is what John Owen was saying. God desires more than just calling out to him in great times of agony and struggle. God desires for us to be his, to come to him at all times of our life, through the thick and thin, when the, when the, the storm is raging or when we have peace in our life. This is what God wants to us, to have a relationship with him on a day-to-day basis. This is what God desires for us. This is what John Owen was pointing out. This is what God God urges us to do, not just appeal to him when we struggle, but to appeal to him at all times, to love him, to invest in our relationship with him through a submissive heart, through a responsiveness to his word. Oftentimes, though, it's not our, it's not our lack of desire that stands in the way of meeting with God. It's not, it's not, that we don't wish to know God or don't wish to have a relationship with God, oftentimes it's our conscience. Our conscience is a useful tool that God uses. The Holy Spirit pricks our conscience when we do something wrong. It's a, it's a tool that the Holy Spirit uses. No question, it's, a, it's often a good thing. But all, all too often, um, Satan uses our conscience to discourage us, to humiliate us. My boy now is two years old. He's a wonderful, intelligent, beautiful little boy who's very far from perfect. He, there are times when he doesn't like to do things right. We have a lot of rules around the house, inevitably. Rules around the house. Things that we, my wife and I have, have discussed, we, we want him to learn to do things properly. And he loves to push boundaries because, because he has a sin nature. If anybody doubts whether somebody has a sin nature, have a two-year-old. Everybody has a sin nature. He loves to push boundaries. One of, the, one of his favorite things to, to push boundaries on is he loves to play with the safety covers on the, on the knobs of the front of the stove. And they're, they're child-safe, locked-down things. He can't turn the stove on. But my wife and I decided, you know, we want to discourage him from ever playing with the knobs in the front of the stove. So despite the fact that he's, he's safe, we're still going to encourage, you know, reprimand him whenever he touches it and encourage him not to touch it. It's not something that we punish him for. It's, it's nothing major, but we, every time he re- walks by and reaches up and bats it, I don't know what it is about safety features. They always want to just hit all the safety features on everything. Every time he reaches up and hits it, we, we're quick to, to confront him. Hey, Daniel, you're not to touch that. And he reacts differently, depending on what mood he is and depending on how hungry he is, how much sleep he has. He reacts differently. Sometimes he says, yes, sir, and goes to the other room. He's, he's, so, he's so polite. I love him. He throws sir in there. It makes me so happy. Sometimes he says, yes, sir, and he goes in the other room. Sometimes he, he pushes back. He touches it again. He, he pushes his boundaries, and we have to enforce it further. And sometimes... He just gets so overwhelmingly hurt. He apologizes six times and, 
and, and cries and he won't look us in the eye and he goes in the other room and cries and I feel like a terrible parent because I've just apparently scarred my kid because he's touching something that's safe anyway. This is, this is a, 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 a symptom of an overactive conscience. Uh, as verse 22 calls it, an evil conscience. Even though a, a sin is dealt with, even though something is put in the past, it's, it's, the reprimand was there, the, the punishment, as simple as it was, is there. Even though that has happened, the guilt consumes this poor little man. It, it consumes him, and he doesn't know how to, how to respond properly because of an evil conscience that is dragging him down. And, and very likely, we've all suffered this. The guilt of a sin that's past. Despite a wrong being dealt with, we can't let go of the memory of that guilt. We can't let go of the, the, the feeling of awfulness that is associated with that sin. And Satan takes this and uses it as an opportunity to drive a wedge between us and God. Despite God's forgiveness being all that we need we let our minds be consumed with the guilt of past sin. The way I see it, there's only two ways to, to deal with an overactive or of an, or of an evil conscience. The first one, very straightforward. Never sin. I imagine this would help. I, I don't know. I haven't. If anybody has lived a perfect life, please come talk to me. I'd like to know whether that works to get rid of, a, a, of an overactive conscience. Also, I'd like to talk to you about some other things. <laughs> the other thing is found in verse 22. The only way that we can deal properly with an overactive conscience, verse 22 and 23, what does it say? Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The only way that we can ever have a pure conscience, a conscience free from guilt, is to understand that God has sprinkled the blood of his son, the sacrifice that paid for our sins, sprinkled that on our hearts. We are made pure. Symbolically, as it says in 22, washed with pure water. The, the symbol of baptism has washed us clean. What, remember what verse 14 said. God has perfected those whom he sanctified. God says he doesn't remember our sins anymore. We are perfect. Our sins are not remembered. Of course, God is omniscient. We know he doesn't forget the fact of our sins. He, he knows our history, but he no longer remembers the penalty. He no longer holds the penalty or the condemnation or the guilt of that sin, that's gone forever. When we sin, the Holy Spirit reveals that sin to us, often through our conscience. 
And at that same point, that same point that we recognize that we have sin in our life, we can thank God if we are a follower of him that he has already covered that sin by the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ. We don't need to be consumed by the guilt because the God who has promised to redeem us is faithful, as it says in verse 23. Regardless of who you are, regardless of of whether you're a Christian or not, never let guilt of past sin stand in the way of you drawing near to God. If you are a Christian, God has already applied the payment of his son to the sin and he no longer holds it against you. And if you are not a follower of Christ, if you are not a Christian, realize that he wants nothing more than to free you from that overwhelming guilt, that overwhelming burden of sin and guilt. Praise God for his forgiveness. Praise God for his faithfulness in forgiving us. The times that over and over again we sin, yet he says, don't dwell on that. Don't let your conscience condemn you. Don't let your conscience stand in the way of you coming near, drawing near, and having a relationship with me. That is what he wants from us. We're to draw near to God through the work of his son on the cross and we're able to do it confidently because of the promise of God's forgiveness. But also, we don't need to do it alone. Verses 24 and 25 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. If you've been a part of our church family for any length of time, you know that we strive to make sure that everything we do fits under four categories here. We uh, make things fall under worship, instruction, fellowship, and expression. This is, this is our mission of the church, to, to make sure everything has a purpose that falls under these four categories. In my church growing up, fellowship meant a potluck dinner. And... I loved fellowship. It was great. I'd jump in the gym. I would go first in the line. I'd get a whole big plate of K's, Miss K's cheesy potatoes, and I would scarf it down, and me and the rest of the kids would go in the basement and play tag while the adults fellowshiped some more, which we presumed to mean eat more food. I loved fellowships growing up. It was great. I didn't understand, probably until Bible college, how much... Christian fellowship was a, was a biblical thing, something that we had to do to, to, to fulfill the, the will of God in our lives. In, in, in my college dorm, I, I, was, I went to a Bible college and I lived in a dorm with a hundred other people, a hundred other guys, and most all of them were good Christian people who wanted to serve God, who wanted to point other people others to Christ. This, this kind of revolutionized my relationship with God because I had all these people around me. I don't, I don't know if you uh, have this uh, understanding, but if you live with someone for any length of time, you begin to understand their, their faults, their, their weaknesses, their flaws. If you don't believe me, just ask somebody who's married or who has siblings. We understand the flaws of the people that we're around constantly. And when I had nearly a hundred Christian brothers 
around me who, who not only had a desire to have a relationship with God, they had a desire to, to help the people around them have a desire to have a relationship with God. These people constantly would come up and encourage me and lift me up and, and, and sometimes tell me off a little bit. When I would become distracted with a video game or, or when, I would, when I would waste my time on something or, or when I was failing to do my devotions, I had people come and show their, their concern for me, and show their concern for my relationship with God. That's, that's what it is to have Christian fellowship. We don't need to go through the Christian walk alone. We can do it alongside other people, other people who desire to reflect God in their lives rather than wanting to reflect the world. When we're around those people, it's incredible how much we can stir one another up to love and good works. This isn't just an optional thing. You can't say, I want to be a, a follower of Christ. I just don't want to be around other Christians. It's not how it works. God's, God has a plan for today. And that plan for his followers today is to be part of a church, part of a group of believers who can strive to know God together. Strive alongside one another and lift one another up and encourage one another to love and good work. God's plan for his follower is to be part of a church and to, to do the, great, the work of the Great Commission through the church. That's what he has for us today. That's what he desires for us. Pastor Jeremy and I don't get up here and, and talk about the benefits of church because, because we want to see huge numbers out here. We don't get up here and say, you need to be part of a church because because we want to go to the Lapeer Ministers Association and say, we have the biggest church in town. That's not what it's about. We have a desire to tell people about the benefits of church because God has shown that there is so much benefit with surrounding yourself by other people, like-minded people who have a desire to know God. Because there is so much value in partnering with the people around you. The church is what God uses to draw his followers to get to, to him with each other. We draw near to God through the work of Christ on the cross and with a conscience that's sprinkled clean alongside the others on our same journey. Not because God needs our attention. Not because we bring anything to the table to help God continue being God but rather we do it because he desires to have a relationship with us. He desires to know us personally and for us to gain the eternal, immeasurable benefit of knowing him personally. Brothers and sisters, we have a God who is so great, so loving, so far beyond the gods that are devised by the minds of men. Yet he loves us and wants to have a relationship with us. How beautiful. I pray that you would not let anything stand in the way of you zealously pursuing a relationship with God in your life. And if you're here today and if you are not a follower of my God, if you don't know him personally, 
please realize that he loves you more than you could possibly know. He wants to free you. He wants to know you in a way that no one else can. He wants you to know him and it will change your life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you for your gift of love, your son's work on the cross, your purification of your forgiveness, and the people that you put in our lives to help us draw closer to you. We know that you have a perfect plan. We know that you have so much in store for us. Help us to to depend on you, not to not to look for answers in this world, but to look to you in all things for your wisdom, your love, your benefit, so that we can grow in you, that we can know you more, that we can draw near to you. We thank you, Lord. Amen.